All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 23rd day of January 2018. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And that you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here in New York City uh, during normal work hours, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also, I'd like to encourage you to consider subscribing to my friend Chen Lin's letter. Go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Chen has had a marvelous track record in the past. Um, he's done very, very well, and... Uh, I think you might want to check him out. Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. And I'd like to invite you to send along your questions, criticisms, and praises, whatever is on your mind, to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. They are, for today's show, Bonterra Resources, Uranium Energy, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp. Um, and I uh, just got back from the Metals Investor Forum in Vancouver uh, over the last weekend, and it was a, a very, very good event. I ran into quite a few of you, quite a few listeners to this show, uh, and uh, the most common remark I got from many of them uh, was how much they enjoyed Michael Oliver and Michael Oliver's uh, comments that he makes from time to time on the show, and he'll be with us momentarily. Uh, we'll get an update from Michael, hopefully, uh, just a min- couple of minutes from now. I've named uh, a title of today's show, The Economic Consequences of Our Military-Industrial Complex. And uh, Daniel McAdams, Jeff Deist, both of them from Ron Paul's uh, congressional days, will be with us. And uh, Nav Dhaliwal, um, he'll be with us as well from Bonterra Resources. And then, of course, Michael Oliver momentarily will be with me. Americans uh, hear a constant drumbeat of fear over rogue nations and how we must spend more for military defense. But why is America worried about Russia when that country is totally surrounded by NATO and the U.S. uh, has intelligence in 126 different countries to force those countries to continue using the dollars, at least as long as they're able to keep them using the dollar, and try to influence their elections And how is it so-called defense to use our Navy to restrict China from using its own sea lanes for trade? Might we not be better off if we allowed China to trade freely, not only with us, but with countries 
in its own backyard? Might we not be better off if we avoided spending trillions of dollars on wars, sending our CIA around the world to manipulate elections and change governments whenever we feel like it? How is it our nation, how is our nation building an empire behavior consistent with our own declaration of independence? Or have we perhaps not turned into something more akin to the English empire that was overthrown, uh, not overthrown, but at least chased out of the Americas by our founders? So what are the economic consequences of, uh, of, this, uh, of America's endless wars and uh, intervention overseas? And what about the impact of America's declining influence in the Middle East? So these are some of the things that I have on my mind. What will that mean to the petrodollar? What will a declining dollar's value mean to our markets and to our own well-being here in America that may be blowback from all of this uh, intervention overseas? These are some of the issues that I really want to talk to Jeff and Daniel about when they're on with us at the back end of the show today. Um, in just a few minutes after our first commercial break, I'll be talking to Nav Dhaliwal. He's... Uh, about his company, Bonterra Resources, really coming into some really great numbers, uh, building up a, what I think is going to be a very sizable, high-grade gold deposit in uh, in Quebec. And so um, we'll be talking to NAV right after the first commercial break. But at least right now, I have Michael Oliver with me. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to have you with me. It's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Dot com. Michael, this morning you told me that uh, MSA has now somewhat altered its views with regard to the equity market. Um, talk to us a little bit about what your, how your thoughts have changed a bit. Yeah, our original thought was the once uh, the topping occurred that the decline would be layered and arduous and it would not be easy to capture. In other words, not some quick shot, but given uh-huh. the blow-off action that we've seen over the last few months, we have to sort of step aside from that assessment and come down on the possibility that when it tops, within a few months of the top, never never right off of a top, you could get something more serious and rapid rather than arduous and prolonged. Uh, the, we put out a report this weekend and we focused in on some short to intermediate term factors in the market technicals, uh, momentum technicals, that if they snap, could create a wobble, and the first thing we'd look for is a wobble, nothing serious, nothing anybody would call anything but a buying opportunity, and yeah. I'm talking, you know, three or four percentage points at most. If you got something like that, and if it occurred uh, such that it, it, your peak was in February or, or soon, and you wobbled off three or four percent and found yourself wobbling around steady, but three or four percent off the high come next quarter. Meaning you, you, you top, you go down for a handful of weeks, you waste the month of March in some protracted trading decline. The problem then is when the new quarter rolls around, the numbers that apply to quarterly momentum and can break the structures there that are very clear and very massive mm-hmm. rise sharply so that the market can't afford at any time now, between now and early next quarter, a drop of of a, you know, three or four percentage points from current levels. Now, if the market continues to advance mm-hmm. uh, meaningfully, not, not just another percent or so, but uh, if it continues to advance sharply, then, then these numbers will rise sharply as well. So the, the sure. my numbers that break the market down for next quarter, the quarterly momentum structures, rise like a dog chasing up underneath the market, barking. Yeah. Um, so as the market rises, it really isn't outrunning these numbers. It's just raising 
the level of which it breaks these structures next quarter. So mm-hmm. what I'm looking for initially is not this big numbers. I'm looking for a wobble that sets the market in position where when it opens the next quarter, oops, it's facing the numbers. And that doesn't take but a, a mild pullback in the market that nobody would care about. Mm-hmm. And so we're focused on identifying that right now. Oh. And uh, while all this is going on, uh, you know, Trump has, has begun his little trade war, I guess. You better go out and buy your washing machine now because prices are going to go up. Uh, but gold is also back above 1340 It's up about $9, $10 today. It's back up near the recent high. What's important about that is, again, is, is an asset class change versus stocks. Uh, gold's been behaving very well for the last two years on a percentage basis, year to year. Yes, it's behind the S&P, but it's not all that much behind and it wouldn't take but, uh, you know, a 5% up jolt in gold and a 3 or 4% down jolt in the S&P, and they'd suddenly be matched for a two-year performance period. Uh, and I suspect gold is at near 1350. That's a very pregnant spot for price charts. Mm. Uh, we're yeah. already bullish based on momentum, but the price guys are going to get very excited if you close a month out above 1350. So I'd watch those two events, a potential wobble in the S&P, of, you know, two to three percentage points would be sufficient. And the, the issue is if you do that, you better not stay down there between now and the beginning of next quarter. In other words, you better not have a four, five, six-week sell-off that mm-hmm. labors off of the high. By mm-hmm. the way, this is how 87 and 29 topped. They topped mm-hmm. in the middle month of a quarter. The initial sell-off was only a handful of percentage points. And the problem was when they opened the fresh new quarter, in both those cases, it was Q4 of the year. Bam, the quarterly numbers were facing the market. And then they triggered the quarterly momentum breakage levels. And that's when all hell broke loose. But initially, even in both those markets, the first sell-off was gentle, not alarming. It was just a wobble. But it positioned the market so that it was in bad position for the new quarter. That's kind of what we're looking at right now. Wow, that's... Uh that's that's really interesting. I you know I wasn't around for the twenty nine break, Michael, but I sure was for the eighty seven one. <laughs> and I remember it. I remember, I remember the fear that was gripped in the in at least in New York, when I was working in Manhattan. I can remember the fear that I felt in my own gut. Mm. You know, and when there were no buyers for America's greatest companies there for a little mm. while, when fear just seized the markets like never before, and then of course. The president's working group uh, was created, and the government started intervening and making sure that that never happened again. But then again, it did happen in 2008, 2009, didn't it? And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we, we don't learn. So uh, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's a, a, it, interest rates continue to rise. Something's going to trigger this thing. And, and what you're saying is this, I guess what you're saying is this massive rise more recently, this almost exponential push up is that's really a, making that's things what we term, uh, we can objectively define it as blow off action and there's one yeah. thing, a rule about blow offs if they occur late in the bull trend not if they occur uh, at the onset of a new bull market that's different but if they uh-huh. occur you know years into a trend and you've accelerated the angle of price ascent that is a sign of terminal action not of beginning action right uh, and then it just becomes a matter of when and where well, we're going to have to watch it very carefully, and of course, um, you know, uh, just be ready for it as much as we can be, and uh, own things that aren't susceptible, I guess, or have a short, mm-hmm. perhaps a short position in the equity market. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And you're still bullish, though, on on the commodities. I think you're still yeah. very bullish on the agri-commodities commodi- primarily, yeah. right? Well, right now, the soybeans, for example, are near levels that break their annual momentum out to the upside. Corn and wheat are still lagging a bit on that. Platinum has joined the precious metals for the first time. It's breaking through an annual momentum base that's years wide. That looks good. Natural gas is uh, popping over some structures that if it can hang around between now and the month's end, uh, it, it could get a breakout. So there's a bunch of lagged commodities that mm-hmm. weren't part of the last year and a half of upside in commodities like, you know, copper was and oil was and gold was, that mm-hmm. will join in. And I think that will, uh, you know, basically blossom the commodity asset category in terms of whether it's bullish or bearish. It'll, it'll shift entirely bullish. Uh, and I think that's happening piecemeal. And uh, I don't think anybody's noticing it. Why? Because everybody's looking at stocks and, you know. Yeah, the, the, it just, they just keep going up. They're never yeah, going yeah. down again. Well, they're going up forever, of course. We hey, a one-way, a one-way bet. Never have to worry. <laughs> uh, we've, we've got, um, yeah, we've got heaven on earth here. Don't worry. Everything is fine. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much again for your, for your, for your wisdom and your insights. Always appreciated, as I learned over and over again up there in Vancouver this past weekend. Thank you so much, and we'll look to talk to you again next week, hopefully. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. All right. Well, folks, uh, don't go away. I'll be right back with Nav Dhaliwal, the president and CEO of Bonterra Resources, a company that's doing really well on the exploration front in Quebec. Be right back with Nav Dhaliwal. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And, um, well, we were supposed to have Nav Davliwal with us here. Uh, He is the president and CEO of Bonterra Resources. But just before we went into commercial break, we got a message here in the office 
that Nav was not available. I don't know why he's not available. I don't know really what the story is there, but he is not available. So I am going to uh, perhaps share a few of my ideas and some of the comments that I made in Vancouver this past weekend at the Metals Investor Forum. Um, I should say maybe just a word about our sponsors today because there are a lot of things that are happening that are very very interesting. Uh, Bonterra Resources, uh, we were going to hear from them, but they are starting their winter drilling program. They are doing extremely well uh, with their uh, with their uh, exploration efforts. Uh, uh, they have uh, something, a small deposit of around 270,000 ounces, I believe, if memory serves me correctly, uh, from a, an area of 200 meters uh, along strike and 200 meters to depth. But now they've got that stretched out to um, uh, 1.2 kilometers by a kilometer at depth. Uh, and if the grades are anything like they were before uh, with their initial resource, then we're looking at, at something very significant, very significant, with lots of more exploration uh, to come. And the stock is trading at around 43 cents. It uh, is a market cap of 82 million thereabouts. But uh, big companies, uh, companies uh, of note like Kinross and Kirkland Lake, uh, the Van Eck Gold Fund, Eric Sprott, they're owners of this company. It is one that I think is definitely worth looking at, uh, worth considering owning. I do not own it personally. It is a recommendation in my newsletter. But I was uh, hope to have uh, Nav Dhaliwal with us sometime in the near future to give us an update there. Uranium Energy Corporation, we heard in uh, Vancouver from... Uh, from Amir Adnani about uh, the uranium story in general, but uranium energy has picked up some great assets during this decline in the uranium market. And uh, that is one also, I think, that, uh, well, the United States is just doesn't produce much uranium. Uh, it consumes something like, I think if memory serves me correctly, something like 40 million pounds a year. It produces uh, maybe 10% of that. And it has to import from Russia and all um, and, and various other places. Of course, Canada is, is a pl- main place, main source of uranium that the U.S. gets, but it ha- also has had agreements to uh, to acquire from Russia and other other places, which also makes it, of course, curious as to why uh, the Obama administration agreed to let the Russians own uh, 10% of our, or a significant amount of our uranium. Uh, that's something that's being, I guess, ferreted out uh, geopolitically. Politically, uh, within the United States, a lot of a lot of stuff going on there, it seems. RN Resources, well, this is um, Ivan Bebek, the chairman, CEO, the executive chairman of that company, also spoke to us in uh, in Vancouver, and I'll tell you, uh, the stock is down quite a bit, but they've got a lot of things going on now in uh, in Peru. One in particular, there's one intersection they're waiting for. If that comes in, it's something like a 400-meter intersection in favorable rocks. If uh, if that comes through with the kind of numbers that uh, we that, that they've seen elsewhere on that property, then I think uh, you'll see RN Resources' share price probably... Uh, drive significantly higher. Uh, a lot of good things happening with RN, several properties, and now this year they'll be producing, excuse me, they'll be exploring and providing information and data throughout the winter from their Peruvian properties. Well, Novo Resources has gotten hit pretty hard today, but uh, frankly, I look at it as a potential buying uh, possibility down the road here. I wouldn't be surprised to see Novo fall perhaps to $2 in U.S. money. Uh, but the good news today was that they have their permits now to start 
exploring and developing um, the uh, the uh, Comet Well property, which is really what Quentin Henning wanted to start working on. He had to uh, the only I mean he had permits uh, for the uh, Purdy's Reward property, and he was able to do some stuff there uh, along with his 50% joint venture partner. But quite frankly, the depth. Uh, and, and what he was looking at in down deeper into the basin where he anticipates the um, uh, the the gold reefs the gold the reefs that host the gold to be um, that's what we're going to be looking for I, I I think that Quentin is as optimistic as ever uh, he's been about novel resources the market I mean it's a compo- complicated story uh, it is a complicated geology it's a new unusual sort of story. Uh, but um, there's no reason to believe any less now than in the past uh, that, um, that that Quentin Henning isn't onto something, or potentially onto something that is very very significant. Uh, and then Genesis Metals uh, the share price rose fairly nicely, at least earlier in the day today, on some very good numbers. And we'll be talking to the president and CEO of Genesis Metals uh, sometime in the very near future. Now, uh, since we're missing Nav Dalliwell. Uh, and I have a few more minutes before we our next guest comes on. Uh, we're going to have Daniel McAdams uh, and Jeff Deist with us. Um, in fact, I guess they may be with us very soon. Um, I've titled the I titled the talk uh, "2018: A Year of Epic Market Disruptions," and that was a question mark. And some of the reasons that I think that we may be in for for a very very significant year in the financial markets this year. Uh, there, there are three basic reasons. First of all, we're at that stage of the credit cycle, as Alistair McLeod has talked to us on this show before. We're at that stage in the credit cycle where banks have to start lending money. Interest rates start to rise, so banks were holding all of these treasuries that were created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. They're, they bought those treasuries, pumping money into the system. It drives the interest rates down. Banks are holding government debt. But now as interest rates start to rise beyond the control of the Fed, the banks start losing money on those holdings. So they start to sell those those treasuries, which then, of course, causes rates to rise. But they put that, wor- that money to work in the form of loans. It actually gets money into the real economy. Uh, and when that happens, prices start to rise, which then are good for commodities. Um, they're good for GDP. It's good for GDP, at least in the short run. Uh, and... Um, you know, people feel better about things, except the banks uh, then become more and more aggressive because they're competing with other banks to try to lend money, to try to get the loan business. Uh, and then the banks get crazier and crazier until they lend money to such an extent that uh, we have another banking crisis uh, and people can't pay their debts and so forth. So that's sort of normally what happens through these credit cycles, and they're exacerbated. They become greater the more the Fed sends more money into the economy. Uh, you have these cycles become larger and larger over time, never allowed to self, uh, never allowed to self-correct. The government gets involved and doesn't allow the markets to really work. But I argued in my talk in Vancouver that this is not your father's credit cycle. This is a credit cycle that is much bigger than the last one. It's much bigger than the one that uh, that aborted in um, uh, in 2008, 2009 that caused the, the financial crisis. Uh, and so we have a massive amount of debt that cannot stand interest rate normalization. So what happens um, when interest rates hit that point where the next stock market cra- uh, cycle ends 
And uh, as Michael Oliver was just suggesting now, given the recent blow-off in the equity markets, he believes that, contrary to what he had been saying, that we could be facing a very significant decline, a very sudden rapid crash, a market crash, if you will. Well, I was sort of hoping we could avoid that this time, but it looks like, according to Michael, his work, that that may become even uh, even greater. Then the third major point that I that I made in my talk was that I believe that we are seeing some major geopolitical winds that are blowing that are not kind to the United States dollar. And we've, of course, been talking to Alistair McLeod and other guests on the show about the possibilities of uh, the dollar losing its uh, premier standing as the world's number one reserve currency. Now, if the dollar starts to lose its value, its purchasing power on the global markets, then um, I, I think that if that coincides with the next market correction, uh, then we could be in, Americans could be in for a rude awakening uh, of what might uh, come to pass. Now, all of this is, of course, interrelated with um, all of this is interrelated with geopolitical stuff that's going on. I can't help but think, and I talked a little bit about the relationship. You know, the petrodollar was based on Saudi Arabia's, uh, our agreement with Saudi Arabia. Nixon, after he took gold away from the dollar, had to have something to keep the dollar with some value. And the arrangement was with Saudi Arabia to demand payment for their oil in dollars, and, and the other OPEC nations followed that trend that really allowed the dollar to uh, maintain its uh, its its preeminent status as a global currency, as the number one world's currency. Uh, but that has been uh, that has been shored up with military actions, and um, you know any country that seemed not to want to use the dollar became labeled a rogue nation. So we went after Iraq, we went after Syria, we went after uh, uh, Libya, of course. Um, you know, it's so it's it's very very interesting to see what's going on geopolitically. Well, anyway, we are going to go to a break now. The point I was making is that that we have a lot of things changing, a lot of things in in play now. I think that are going to cause a very that may cause a very significant uh, change in the markets this year. Uh, the equity, the uh, the credit cycle, uh, an extreme credit cycle this time, even more so than the last time, and these various geopolitical issues that are coming into play. Uh, we may be able to talk to Jeff. Uh, we may be able to talk to Jeff Deist and Daniel McAdams right now. I think they're both with us. Uh, so we're going to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, uh, we'll be talking to Jeff uh, and Daniel. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Bonterra Resources, a Canadian exploration company, is aggressively expanding its high-grade Gladiator Gold deposit in Quebec, Canada. In 2017, Bonterra raised $40 million and attracted strategic investors Eric Sprott, 
Kinross, Kirkland Lake Gold, and New York-based Vanek Gold Fund. Bonterra is focused on updating its 43-101 resource model in 2018 and will incorporate up to an additional 100,000-plus meters of drilling where the dimensions of the Gladiator Gold Deposit has been expanded to date nearly 500%. Bonterra trades in Canada under the symbol BTR and in the U.S. under BONXF. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me a couple of friends from long ago, uh, Daniel McAdams, uh, and as well as Jeff Dice, uh, both former staff members of Congressman Ron Paul. Welcome, both of you, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Um, yeah, I, was, I sort of t- titled today's show, The Economic Consequences of Our Military-Industrial Complex, and I it seems to me that what we have is a uh, is a military run amok. I, I guess empires do that. We we are not told that we're an empire, but it seems as though we are based on. Uh, I guess it's something like a hundred and twenty six countries or something like that, Daniel. That we have some sort of presence. Does that sound right to you? That sounds about right. It's about one hundred and twenty five too many. And so, what are they doing there? What are we doing in those countries? Well, we're all through Africa, that's for sure, um, even though the Congress doesn't seem to know about it unless a, a special forces guy gets killed. Uh, but ostensibly, it's the war on terror, although now uh, Defense Secretary Mattis has come out with a new defense strategy saying that uh, terrorism is no longer the threat, really. It's actually Russia and China. So I don't think anyone knows. We're just at war with everything, Jay. So terrorism has been defeated, we're told, by uh, uh, terrorism has been defeated by uh, by our president Trump, and so it's now it's now Russia and China that are what we have to be concerned about. Is that is that the new thing? And and so how are we going to do that? According to the according to the new national defense strategy that was uh, introduced by Secretary Mattis a couple of days ago. So how are we going to address that? I wonder. Uh, lots of contracts with the military industrial complex. <laughs> That's the short answer. So as long as we keep those guys, uh, the money flowing to those guys, everything is okay, I guess, huh? Or not okay. We can't have everything okay, then the money has to stop going to those guys, right? We have well, to have some true. boogeyman. Uh, that's true, and, and, uh, and, and it's always been wrong. I mean, this goes, is, is, uh, this goes back to the Wolfowitz plan of 1994. The U.S. at the end of the Cold War had absolutely no idea what to do. All the people, all the Sovietologists, all the experts who had made a good living off of the Cold War, suddenly faced unemployment and even worse, uh, <clears throat> a diminishment in their notoriety uh, as great experts. And so Wolfowitz in 94 came up with this plan that the United States is now the sole superpower and that our grand national strategy would be to use whatever it takes to prevent any other power from challenging the U.S. as a superpower. And, of course, that's what's being brought back into play uh, by Mattis, 
uh, and by the uh, military and neocons around him. They're resurrecting this. This was always the big, uh, the big enchilada anyway, and this is uh, now, now back in play. So that might explain then why we, why we won't allow China to patrol their own sea lanes, I suppose. We shouldn't allow China, a country of that magnitude, even to have the right to, to control its own sea lanes. I suppose. And nor, that's, that's, nor, nor is Russia allowed to be concerned that, it, that essentially a fascist uh, coup government is in power next door in Ukraine. Right. One that, uh, that our NGOs were responsible for helping to put there, I guess, right? And the U.S. government and Victoria Newland, who now has a, an extremely well-paid job in the, quote, nonprofit sector. Daniel, to what extent, you know, we, when Donald Trump ran for office, he talked a lot about um, reigning in NATO, having countries pay for NATO's expenditures. Um, you know, he was very vocal about not getting involved in places like, um, you know, he was critical of Iraq and Libya. Uh, to what extent, if any, do you think that he is uh, that he's toned down, or has he, has he, or or is he even more aggressive than Obama in some of these ways, in some of these areas? Well, I think unfortunately, candidate Trump has reversed his positions, uh, and we deal with this a little bit on today's Liberty Report, Dr. Paul. But I think what happened is. Uh, for lack of a better term, what we term as a deep state, uh, the permanent state, the permanent government, the military-industrial congressional complex, they became terrified at Donald Trump's rhetoric as a candidate. And I think they determined uh, that, A, he must be preve- prevented from winning, and when he shocked the world and actually won, they decided that, B, we have to do everything we can to undermine him. I think that is the core of the Russiagate scandal. We're seeing more and more of it come out as these texts uh, are being released, and uh, the ones that haven't been, quote, lost, are being released from the FBI. We're finding out that this whole, that the collusion was not with Russia. The collusion was among the U.S. intelligence community to prevent a president from being seated or from lasting in office who really threatened their way of life. It is a coup in America. There's no question. All right. So, so Trump was, is threatening the establishment in America. Probably threatening in some ways. Do you, are you? Do I hear you saying that he may be threatening the military-industrial complex? Or do I understand you in saying that, Daniel? In some way, one way or another. Well, he he threatened the gravy train. Uh, you know, the gravy train is that uh, everyone <clears throat> has their wits scared out of them, and they ad- agree to a trillion-dollar military budget every year. Uh, the reason right. why Loudoun County and Fairfax County are right next to Washington, D.C., are the wealthiest counties in the country because yeah. this is the core uh, of the military-industrial complex. So you have, uh, you have a lot of uh, interrelated interests that do not want us to go off of war footing. And I think that's what President Trump uh, hit uh, head-on when he became president. And uh, I don't know if he blinked or if something more nefarious happened, but unfortunately he has. Uh, stepped back quite a bit from his uh, uh, very oftentimes excellent campaign rhetoric. Um, all right. So, uh, Jeff, is there any um, – do, do we really know how much the military spends? I think we don't. A lot of it's hidden. Ostensibly, the quote-unquote military budget's about $825 billion a year. Uh, mostly to the DOD, but there's more to it than that. A lot of our, uh, what what amounts to military interventionism, uh, spending for that is hidden 
in places like uh, foreign aid budgeting and state depart- department budgeting in, in some unholy trade deals. So I would argue that we spend roughly a trillion dollars a year on meddling because it's not really defense. Nobody's threatening the United States militarily. Let, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. So we spend about, we, the U.S. federal government spends about $4 trillion a year. Right now, so-called defense is about $1 trillion of it. Social Security and Medicare, for which there is zero uh, popular will to tinker, uh, you know, account for more than $2 trillion together. So we're rapidly reaching the point where, as a country, all of our spending is going to be consumed, all our government spending is going to be consumed by entitlements and war. Uh, and especially this will be true if interest rates are forced to rise to keep people interested in buying our treasury debt, which I suspect and, and which our, our leaders at the Fed tell us is indeed going to happen over the next few years. So what right now is about a $300 billion annual expenditure in the federal budget on interest on the national debt could very quickly uh, begin to double or triple and become a trillion dollars. So you start to look at all of these other things that American uh, people uh, imagine they're going to get from the government, like ag spending and welfare spending and AFDC and housing and energy and all these things. And they're quickly being squeezed out because we have this atavistic, bizarre uh, need to to police the world. And And what's so interesting about it is that even as we're told there's this huge divide in America between red and blue, between rural and urban, between Hillary voters and Trump voters, in fact, there's this there's this awfully comfy little comity in the Beltway and neighborhood. And people who know the Beltway will know neighborhoods like Chevy Chase and Calorama and D.C. and Great Falls and Bethesda. And here yeah. you've got progressives and conservatives living quite comfortably together uh, based on one uh, universal shared uh, premise, and that is that the gravy train will continue to float down the river, and 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 that's what Daniel's getting at when he says the gravy train, because it, it's it's a bipartisan affair. Yeah, it, it would certainly seem that way, uh, which may account for you know a lot of the Republican legislators not seeming to to be all that comfortable with uh, some of the things Mr. <laughs> Trump has said. <laughs> no, they're they're very comfortable in, in, in certain ways. If you look at their reelection rates, if you look at the gerrymandered districts in which they live, and if you look at their relationships uh, with with their donors, this, this isn't uh, some sort of bizarre conspiracy. It's it's quite out in the open in FEC reports. You can look up who gives what to whom. So mm-hmm. it's on us. It's it's not a conspiracy. Yeah. Well, what seems really troublesome to me, uh, you know, we, we're seeing the interest rates start to rise again. I believe that those are, that interest rates are rising in large part just because it's the nature of the cycle in markets. The Fed has some control of the short end of the yield curve. But as you say, Jeff, we've got to finance this deficit. Americans, you know, we've been able to live beyond our means for quite a while. First, the Japanese and then more recently, the Chinese were buying treasuries. The Chinese have made no bones about their dislike for doing so. Why would they like it if we take those the financing from their savings and use it to patrol or get involved in their own their own part of the world and not allow them to patrol their own sea lanes? I if one thing I heard this I read this last weekend I believe it was that the Australians are becoming uncomfortable now with their relationship with the United States to a certain extent, 
in that the Chinese are putting some pressure on them, uh, why would the Aussies continue to support America and America's military uh, presence in that part of the world when it means that they lose their markets to to China? So I'm wondering to what extent, if if either of you have any thoughts on the geopolitics and what that what role that may play in the dollar, because if the dollar starts to become less attractive, and it's down 10% or so last year, uh, if it becomes less and less attractive, the ability for foreigners to to attract them to buy the dollar, even at higher interest rates, we saw this in the 1970s, the late 70s, we had to have interest rates go to double digits in order to get in order to finance and get foreigners to send money to the United States so we could continue our extravagant uh, behavior in Vietnam and elsewhere around the world. Um, Jeff, any ideas on, on this? Because we're re- reading the, you know, about the decline of the petrodollar. China is supposedly starting now the yuan uh, petro, uh, petro yuan. Uh, they have their own gold trading system. In Shanghai, they have a futures trading system for oil and for for gold, um, it seems to me that there's military, there's geopolitical things that are coming into play here that could really start to cause some trouble for us financially. In addition to these other things that you just pointed out, Jeff, the the debt that we have, this four trillion dollar debt. Any thoughts on that, Jeff? Well, that it, it's a complex process, but the bottom line is that there's no market amongst the American public for these wars, especially in the Middle East. The, mm-hmm. the, these are deeply unpopular wars. The only people who support this stuff are, are, are largely the people in the in the Acela corridor between D.C. and New York. So yeah. these wars are financed not on a pay-as-you-go system. Imagine if George W. Bush had told America in the early 2000s, look, we're going to invade Iraq to get rid of Saddam Hussein. We all know this is worthwhile. So we're all going to pitch in, and every household's going to be dinged 300 bucks a month to pay for this thing until it's over, because I'm a conservative, and I don't believe in deficits. I mean, it would never have happened. You know, the, the, one of the biggest untold stories of America in the 20th century is how the Fed enabled government growth. And one part of that is is this wilding uh, federal policy of interventionism around the world. It, it enabled entitlement growth as well. But foreign policy is a big part of it. And connecting the dots between the, the Fed and our foreign policy, it, it, again, not a conspiracy, but it requires a, a little bit of thought and, and mm-hmm. a little bit of study. So it's it's not the stuff of sound bites for our candidates, but to put it mildly. Yeah. Daniel, um, in terms of what's going on in the Middle East and Europe and so forth now, the, the that part of the world, uh, I believe there's a general consensus that the United States is losing some of its uh, some some of its influence uh, in Syria, for example. It seems as though uh, you know, of course, the neocons and the establishment is decrying the the, the notion that we are losing our influence in the Middle East. Do you see it that way? Well, I think we are, and I would just like to. <clears throat> underscore what Jeff said earlier about the the Fed uh, in its relationship to our militaristic foreign policy. It's an absolutely critical issue. <clears throat> Pardon me. But uh, the Middle East is the same as you, you mentioned Australia earlier. Uh, you know, the issue, and, I, and I'm going to paint with relatively broad strokes, but U.S. foreign policy has become one of, listen, you do what we say or else, full stop. Mm-hmm. And it has worked because the U.S. market is extremely attractive to people who want to trade with us. But it's becoming less so. 
So you see a situation like Iran. The, uh, the Trump administration is desperate to cancel this deal. That's the one area where Trump's been consistent, canceling the deal with Iran. Uh, in the past, they could have easily relied on the Europeans to walk behind us lockstep. It's not so easy right now, and Trump is finding it's rather difficult because the Europeans are engaging in a lot of trade with Iran, and it's very profitable. And they're seeing the Chinese and Russians move in for a very big market of 80 million people. And so now the, uh, the Trump administration, by continuing this, with this, uh, forget the carrot, it's stick or stick mentality toward the rest of the world, is actually finding itself more isolated. Uh, as Dr. Paul always says, really, it's the interventionists that are the real isolationists because they're isolating us from the rest of the world. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I know that uh, there was at, uh, at one point in time when Obama was pushing forward uh, the Iran deal, uh, Kerry was making a statement about how Europe was going to get upset. He says, we, we asked the Europeans uh, to cooperate with us and to engage in, um, you know, uh, to, to disrupt their economic relations with Iran. Uh, and now we're going to walk this back, and we're not going to, uh, and we're not going to go forward with this Iran deal after they've sa- made those sacrifices. And he gave a very stern warning. He says, "If you want to realize that they're already angry, people are already angry about our about our dollar and how we're using it, that the dollar may lose its preeminence as a result of that." Uh, he was making that threat that uh, you know the uh, dollar hegemony may be threatened because if we if we act this way. So it seems to me that, um, you know, there's a lot of inter, interrelated parts here, you know, and, and the, it's it's connected with finance. I, I really think that, you know, if you put, like, how could the, how could the Australians really, I mean, it, it, we're putting them in a pretty tough spot if we're requiring them to, you know, to give us bases or whatever else we want in order to be able to disrupt Chinese activity. And, and if, if the markets are there for, for Australia, if they're in China and not, you know, all the way in the other side of the earth where we are, you know, it's uh, very interesting. Um, Jeff, any any thoughts along those lines? Well, look at a map. Australia is a lot closer to China than it is the West. It it's it, and it's full increasingly of Asian immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that part of the Pacific is none of the United States business, and. Uh, the the fact that there are historical ties between Australia and England uh, is so far in the rearview mirror at this point. Uh, they have every right and every incentive to view themselves as part of a Pacific trading bloc, which includes China and Japan and Korea. Uh, it would be crazy for them not to see themselves that way. And and frankly, w- this this filter through which we're supposed to view. All American demands as wholesome and good for the world. I mean, why is it good for China to have the dollar as the world's reserve currency? It's good for yeah. me. I yeah. like to buy cheap stuff at Walmart, but why is it good for China? This bizarre sort of inability uh, amongst our modern uh, uh, Georgetown class uh, at, at, at Foggy Bottom uh, to consider <laughs> that other people around the world have differing interests and, and to anticipate that, uh, it, the, the level of bellicosity is really disheartening. 
Well, it's disheartening, and it's so it's kind of understandable, though, in a way. Um, although, uh, why is it that more Americans don't think about it? Or I guess maybe if you're, if everything is is going along well for you, why would you want to disrupt it? I suppose. But if you look at the bigger picture, it's hard to see, um, you know, how other nations aren't angry with us. But isn't this what empires always do? Don't empires keep running until they keep moving in in the same direction until something, some natural forces sort of uh, thwart their their um, their activities well yeah that's the silver lining sometimes empires die quickly in terms of human history but over a period longer than any one person's lifespan so that none of us really necessarily suffers the full realization of it so um, I, I sure hope that the United States is not that hell-bent on ruling the world uh, that it can't see uh, that in the future, uh, we, we need a different kind of foreign policy. We need to, uh, uh, to scale back the rhetoric and, and the reality of nuclear weapons, first and foremost. And we need to stop invading countries that disagree with us uh, and, and get back to an idea of the United States as an example for the world rather than a bully in the world. I, you know, I don't know. It, it, is human nature such that we'll continue blindly along this path until something unpleasant happens to us? Maybe so, but... Uh, you know, people had an opportunity to vote for Ron Paul twice. Yeah, and they were they were seriously looking at people like Barack Obama, John McCain, and Hillary Clinton. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So this is well, this is the world we live in. Well, they don't know Ron Paul like you and Daniel know Ron Paul, and uh, I, I think um, well, but they, they don't know Ron Paul because they to a certain extent because they weren't given an opportunity to. I think the or they didn't seek him out. Uh, is is Daniel still with us? I know he had to leave a little early. Is Daniel still there? Daniel, are you there? He ran off. Uh, he ran off. All right. Well, it, yeah. All right. Well, well. I just uh, Daniel and Ron Paul, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, they do great work. I would suggest that uh, the people listening to this show tune in to that program from time to time. And Jeff, uh, you also do do wonderful work there at the Mises Institute. Who have some of your guests been most recently? And uh, you certainly talk about the economy uh, from an Austrian point of view, which I think is the closest. Uh, economic model to life as it really is, the natural laws of economics and physics. But who have well, some of your guests been of, of late that you... Well, uh, recently, recently, we've really been trying to hit on this theme of decentralization and subsidiarity and localism, which was a theme to an extent uh, for Ludwig von Mises. While he certainly uh, had a universal perspective on some things, he, he condemned universalism in other areas. Rothbard, of course, talked about the difference between the organic nation and the artificial state, which oftentimes has boundaries or boundaries or borders that resulted from a war. Uh, so we've been talking to some guests like Michael Bolden at the Tenth Amendment Center about decentralization. Uh, we've also been trying to reach out to uh, some right conservatives and left progressives uh, uh-huh. on the issue of the Fed. There's a couple of examples. Daniel DiMartino Booth, who I would sort of call a Stockmanite right populist, and my uh, friend Nomi Prinz, who would I, I would uh, no no offense to her, I would I guess I would call her a Bernie progressive. Um, but yet they've both written incredible books about the depredations of central banks and what that and how they create inequality and how they create uh, uh, distortions in the marketplace and malinvestment. So it's it's interesting. One thing that Trump has done is he's changed the goofy left right. Uh, continuum and the goofy left-right debate we were suffering under for so many years uh-huh. has changed that a bit, 
Uh-huh. And, and it's fun to see areas where we can agree with progressives uh-huh. uh, in the Trump area, for, in the Trump era, for example. Yeah, well, that's really good. Well, we've had uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth on this show. I think you've also had Alistair McLeod on your show recently, perhaps sometime, or he's written some things at least for the. I think we published some of his stuff. So we're we're uh, at this point, you know, what I would term libertarianism is, is more about ideas than ideology. I don't think uh-huh. ideology is is serving people right now, and I think there's something in the American psyche, a good thing, a remnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the American spirit is that we're a little suspicious of dogmatic ideology. We're yeah. not we're not big fans of isms, and we have kind of a a, a results driven mindset. and And I think that's good for liberty because I think markets work in ways that top down government doesn't. And if that's if that's uh, the best way to sell liberty to people, then fine. Not everybody has to be some sort of ideological warrior who reads books all the time, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm hopeful that uh, that the next couple of years we'll see some realignments uh, because of all this distress with Trump. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, let's hope some good comes from it. I, it certainly has stirred things up. There's no question about that. Um, I, I just uh, remember reading a piece. I think it was posted at the at uh, the Mises Institute by Alistair McLeod, in which he went back and looked at some of the work of von Mises in terms of the inflationary uh, in, uh, the inflationary episode in Germany, the hyperinflation, and Alistair was drawing some parallels between what was going on. Uh, pre-World War One in Germany and what's going on in the United States now. I thought it was very, very interesting. And in fact, part of my talk in Vancouver was uh, was built off of his talk, off of some of the ideas that uh, that Alistair had. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you very much and thank Daniel. Uh, he had to leave for some personal things. So I want to thank uh, both of you for being with us and uh, look forward to um, having you again sometime soon. Uh, soon as possible as soon as we can work work you in because you do have you do an awful lot of great work over there at the Mises Institute people that want to support the Mises Institute should go where mises.org just come to mises.org and uh, you'll find a, a lifetime worth of reading and and all free so yeah. please familiarize you, yourself with our site if you haven't been to it and you do a, a great weekend show too i think almost every weekend don't you I do a weekend show every weekend absolutely all right great well thank you very much uh, jeff for being with us and uh, Again, uh, all the best to you and your family, and we'll look to do it again sometime soon. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, uh, Kevin Duffy is going to be with us. He's a hedge fund manager, uh, and hopefully Michael Oliver will will return as well. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Uranium Energy Corps, NYSE Market, UEC, is a leader in the coming bull market in uranium. With spot uranium up more than 40% in two months, the new bull market is just starting. UEC has the cash, the licensed resources, the permitted processing center, the advanced technology, and the experienced team to lead this market. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting uraniumenergy.com. NYSE Market, UEC. 